afternoon, we hope to gain wisdom and perspective on Bill's ministry in your midst and on how you must receive that ministry from two scripture passages, the first one being Acts 17, which describes the coming of the gospel of the kingdom of our Lord Jesus Christ to the Greek city, the province of Macedonia called Thessalonica. This is the word of the Lord. Now when they had passed through Amphipolis, or Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, where there was a synagogue of the Jews. And Paul went in, as was his custom, and on three Sabbath days he reasoned with them from the scriptures, explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead, and saying, This Jesus, whom I proclaim to you, is the Christ. And some of them were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, as did a great many of the devout Greeks, and not a few of the leading women. But the Jews were jealous, and taking some wicked men of the rabble, they formed a mob, set the city in an uproar, and attacked the house of Jason, where Paul was staying, seeking to bring them out to the crowd. And when they could not find them, they dragged Jason and some of, his, some of the brothers before the city authorities, shouting, These men who have turned the world upside down have come here also, and Jason has received them. And they are all acting against the decrees of Caesar, saying that there is another king, Jesus. And the people and the city authorities were disturbed when they heard these things. And when they had taken money as a security from Jason and, and the rest, they let them go. So far from Acts, we turn now to the text for this afternoon's message. This is the first chapter of the first letter of Paul and Silas and Timothy to the Thessalonians. This, this was uh, probably the first letter Paul wrote, and most Bible scholars believe this is the first document of the New Testament to be written before even the Gospels. So it was written probably within three to four months of Paul's ministry of the gospel that we read about a moment ago in Acts 17. So it begins with Paul Silvanus. Uh, Silvanus is just another name for Silas. You probably know this man better by the name Silas. Silas was his Jewish name and Silvanus was his uh, Roman name. So Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy to the church of the Thessalonians in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace to you and peace. We give thanks to God always for all of you, constantly remembering you in our prayers, remembering before our God and Father your work of faith and labor of love and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. For we know, brothers loved by God, that he has chosen you, because our gospel came to you not only in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. You know what kind of men we proved to be among you for your sake. And you became imitators of us and of the Lord. For you received the word in much affliction with the joy of the Holy Spirit, so that you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and in Achaia. For not only has the word of God sounded forth from you in Macedonia and Achaia, but your faith in God has gone forth everywhere, so that we need not say anything. For they themselves report concerning us the kind of reception we had among you, and how you turned from 
or turn to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his son from heaven whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. Dear brothers and sisters in the Lord, dear brother Rodenhaus, as you today receive a minister of the word for the very first time as a newly instituted congregation, we're going to take some time to listen to the opening words of a letter written long ago by a team of missionary pastors. Uh, we often refer to this letter as the letter of Paul, but it's not really the letter of Paul, it's the letter of Paul and Silvanus and Timothy. This letter comes from a trio of missionary pastors who all had been involved in the planting of the new church of the Lord in that amazing, beautiful city of Thessalonica. Um, as you read through Thessalonians, you see that the um, pronouns switch back and forth from I to we. I think it's safe to say that when the I takes precedence, that's the voice of Paul. But it's the voice of Paul that yields from time to time to the we of the three, the three missionary evangelists. So this is a letter not really from Paul. He's, maybe we could say he's the main author, the lead author, but this is, this is a letter jointly authored by three men who knew this congregation of Thessalonica very well from the time they had spent there. So by the grace of God, Paul and Silas and Timothy had been able to plant uh, a brand new congregation in this city, Thessalonica. And we could read in Acts 17 how the first members were, were Jewish people who for a long time had been worshiping God and had been awaiting the fulfillment of all the promises of the old covenant promises of the prophets of a coming Messiah who would redeem Israel, would redeem the world, would overcome sin and death. And the rest of the congregation consisted of Gentiles who had previously been bowing down and putting their trust in any number of the gods of the Romans and the Greeks. All of these people together had turned away from their idolatry, away from their unbelief, and they had embraced the living God who revealed himself in his son, Jesus Christ, in his death and resurrection. Paul's ministry um, in Thessalonica was rather abbreviated. I certainly hope Pastor Phil will have a longer ministry among you because Paul only spent three weeks in Thessalonica and then he was driven out of town by, by any number of haters, uh, people who had uh, been incited against him and he was driven out of town and that was becoming a familiar tune because uh, just before he came to Thessalonica, he had been in Philippi, and in Philippi also, Paul had ended up being persecuted, and he had been in jail for a while with Silas, you remember the story, and there they were in jail for the gospel, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, uh, full of joy, even in their imprisonment, and so this is becoming the pattern for Paul. Uh, he went from Thessalonica on to Berea, again, he was chased out of town. Uh, from Berea, he went on to Athens. Uh, we don't read anything there about him being uh, resisted or opposed, but he only spent a short time in Athens, uh, enough time to deliver one astonishing sermon that you can read in Acts 18. And then he went on, uh, he went westward to Corinth. And he stayed in Corinth for a very long time, for a period of years. And it was while he was in Corinth that Paul and his fellow missionaries wrote this beautiful letter, which we call First Thessalonians. What had happened was Paul had left Thessalonica under duress, but somehow Silas and Timothy had 
managed to stay longer and they had continued to minister, bring the gospel, uh, build out the people in faith, preach to the lost. And then when Paul was in Corinth, after some months, Silas and Timothy came to look him up, to have a visit with him and report about all the good things going on in Thessalonica. And it was in that context that this letter was written to the Thessalonians. And what, what these authors say here in the first chapter of, of their letter, I believe will be quite illuminating for you today as you receive a new pastor. And I believe it will provide some orientation points for, for Pastor Phil as he begins his ministry among you. Indeed, it will provide orientation points for the elders and deacons of the church as well. So the unifying thought that I want to draw out of this passage this afternoon can be summarized like this. Ministry, or, or maybe I should say it a little bit differently, effective ministry can only be done from a posture of gratitude. Uh, when Phil kneeled here to hear uh, the charge and to receive the questions, he was in a posture of humility, and that's very profoundly important for ministry. But equally important is to do your work of ministry in a posture of gratitude. And that's what I want to speak about this afternoon. Um, and what were, what were Paul and Silas and Timothy so grateful for? Well, I can summarize that with two points. First of all, they were very grateful because of the response of the Thessalonians to the gospel. And secondly, they were very grateful because the Thessalonians were now embracing the life that was an imitation of the life of the apostle and his partners, Silas and Timothy. So those two points, gratitude for the response to the gospel, gratitude for a life of imitating leadership. First then, response of the people to the gospel. Well, in verse 2, we get a picture in our minds, and it's really a beautiful picture of Paul and Silas and Timothy coming together at some point uh, to pray. So they're in Corinth now, and they're coming together to pray. Uh, Paul was working as a tent maker at this time. We don't know what Silas and Timothy were doing, but at some point in the course of the day, maybe early in the morning or maybe in the evening after the day's work, these men came together, and they reviewed the day. They debriefed each other, you might say, and then they prayed. Isn't that a beautiful picture of Paul and Silas and Timothy on their knees before Almighty God? Um, praying. And uppermost in their prayer, it would appear, is thanksgiving. He says, we give thanks to God always. Uh, in other words, there, there wasn't the prayer in which there wasn't thanksgiving to God. Uh, so whenever they were praying, they were in this mode of gratitude. Uh, they were reflecting on all the wonderful works of Jesus Christ. They were, they were reflecting particularly on all the wonderful works of Jesus Christ in Thessalonica. And they were grateful. That was their demeanor, their posture, was one of gratitude. And we see how broad their gratitude also was. It was, it was ongoing, but it was also very broad because Paul says, we give thanks to God always for all of you. Now, I'm not sure how we are to envision that. Um, Paul and Timothy and Silas certainly knew the names of the believers in Thessalonica. For example, they knew Jason. They knew the name of Jason that we read about in Acts 17. And so perhaps we're to envision that Paul and his friends are on their knees before the Lord giving thanks. And they're actually mentioning by name all the brothers and sisters, the men and the women and the children and the boys and girls 
in Thessalonica. They're, they're lifting up their names before the Lord. I think that's implied here when Paul says, we, we give thanks for all of you. It's not just a generic thanksgiving. Thank you, Lord, that you planted a church in Thessalonica. But thank you, Lord, for Jason and for whoever else there was, thanking them by name. And if that sounds unrealistic to you, uh, maybe it's because you don't realize how much time the apostles devoted to prayer. Uh, if you go back to the book of Acts, um, in the time when the first, let's call them deacons, were appointed, the rationale for appointing the deacons was so that the apostles could devote themselves to two things, the word, the ministry of the word, and the prayers. So the apostles and, and the evangelists were accustomed to being on their knees a lot or whatever posture they, they, they use for prayer. And it's, it's very inspiring to think of these men of God far away from Thessalonica now in some little lodging place in Corinth coming together, the pastoral team, and the first thing they do is give thanks. They give thanks regularly, consistently, and they give thanks for all the believers. It's a beautiful picture. And really, if you think about it, it makes you shiver that the names of, of Jason and all his fellow believers were being lifted up into the presence of holy God by these men of the gospel. So what are they so thankful for, actually, when it comes to the Thessalonians? Well, as you read verses uh, three or verse three, you see that the thanksgiving of the apostle and his uh, companions is is threefold. Um, and there's a, a familiar virtue here, a set of virtues: faith, love, and hope. Uh, that's a combination you find many times in, in the letters of Paul: faith, love, and hope. They they come together. They're all they're all intricately um, intertwined as virtues, Christian virtues, where there is faith, there is love, or where there is faith and love, there is hope, where there is hope, there is love and faith, and so on, whichever way you unpack it. You cannot separate these three virtues. They belong together, and they imply each other, and so the apostles and his, the apostle and his friends are, are giving thanks here for these foundational Christian virtues that are evident in the congregation of Thessalonica, but intriguingly, he ties each of these uh, foundational virtues to another word, so in verse 3, he speaks about faith, but, but particularly your work of faith. And then he speaks of love, but he ties it to labor, labor of love. And then he speaks about hope, and he ties that to endurance. And so if you think of Paul and his friends in their room praying, this was the focus. Work of faith, labor of love, endurance of hope. That's what they were giving thanks for. So let's just think briefly about each of those uh, beautiful terms. First of all, work of faith. Uh, Paul had seen faith in Thessalonica. Paul came to Thessalonica pre preaching Jesus. He preached Jesus of Nazareth. And I'm sure that as Paul preached Jesus of Nazareth, he told the Thessalonians about who Jesus was, what he had done. He probably took them on a, on a walk through one of the gospels you think of the Gospel of Mark, perhaps, and of all the things it says about the words and deeds of Jesus Christ. Paul walked the congregation through all those words and deeds of Jesus Christ, culminating in his suffering and death on the cross, and then being surpassed even by the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So 
Paul preached Jesus Christ, his person, his work, his redemptive accomplishments, and the Thessalonians heard, and the Thessalonians believed. They had faith. They began to put their trust in this Jesus, of whom they had never heard before, remember? You've heard about Jesus a lot, most of you, but they'd never heard about him before. This was all new for them. So they, they received Paul's authoritative apostolic preaching focused on the person and the work of Jesus, and they believed. They entrusted themselves to that message. They, they began to rely on this Jesus who was being proclaimed to them. And then Paul reflects on how their faith was immediately evident in words. I'm not going to belabor that point this afternoon, but if you know your Bible, you will understand that there is no such thing as faith without works. Uh, faith without works is just uh, a sham. It's fake. It's not real. If faith does not ensue in works of love and works of obedience, works of righteousness, then it isn't faith. It might be something religious. It might be spiritual, to use that term, but it's not faith. It does not lead to a life of devotion to God in doing good works, then it isn't faith. As the New Testament letter of James uh, declares in chapters 1 and 2 quite powerfully, faith without works is dead. In other words, it's not faith. It's some kind of a fake uh, thing instead of real faith. So what kind of works does Paul have in mind exactly? Well, that comes out in the next uh, um, term, labor of love. Labor of love. Um, true faith is always accompanied by love. Love means being devoted to the well-being of other people. Love isn't just a feeling of warmth towards other people, although it certainly ought to include that, but it's not reducible to just feelings of warmth. Uh, love is something that shows itself in commitment and, and getting out of your comfort zone to do what is necessary for the good of other people. And it's interesting that Paul connects love here to labor. And labor is the word here that, that conjures up an image of somebody quite sweaty. You know, he's sweaty, she's sweaty. They're, they've been working. So love is not just a feeling, but love, love is something that produces sweat as you get out of your comfort zone to do what is necessary for the upbuilding, the good of your fellow Christians, your family members, the neighbors in your community, the people with whom you live. Uh, in your in your city or town or in your farm farm area so there they are paul and his uh, companions reflecting on the work of faith the labor of love very thankful their thankfulness only increases when they think about what what they call here the endurance of hope or the steadfastness of hope Think about uh, these Thessalonians congregation before they had heard the gospel. What kind of life were they living before they heard the gospel? Were they living a life filled with hope? Was it a hopeful life? A life with positive forward momentum, looking forward to good things to come? Well, we know from the literature of the time, from the poetry of the time, from the dramatic productions of the time, of which there were many, from the philosophers of the time, even from the Jewish rabbis of the time, we know that that entire period was characterized by a sense of despair 
a sense of the futility of life, a sense of, uh, of life not having any kind of forward momentum at all. These people were without Jesus Christ, and therefore they didn't have an answer to death, and they didn't have an answer to judgment, and the future that was before them was, was full of tension and turmoil. They had no hope at all. And then Paul came, and Paul preached Jesus. Crucified, risen, ascended. Jesus who pours out his spirit. A Jesus who is coming again to bring about the resurrection of the body and to take his people forever into God's kingdom. And because these Thessalonians believed the gospel, a very, very powerful hope was born in their hearts that was one of the distinguishing things that people notice about early Christian believers. Uh, Michael Green wrote a book entitled Evangelism in the Early Church, and one of the things he mentions in that book is how profoundly the Romans and the Greeks were affected by the burning hope of Christians. Christians had a very positive view of the future. They knew they were heading for the day of the Lord, the day of Christ, and they were full of excitement about that fact. And it produced in them endurance or steadfastness because, you know, these Thessalonians came under pressure right away. And you know what can happen when people are under pressure? They cave. And so you might have thought these, these brand-new believers, fragile in their faith, now bereft of their leaders, um, that they would just cave when, when the pressure mounted. But they didn't cave. They, they had a remarkable capacity to just hold out and to persevere, to continue and to just steadily look forward. They knew. They knew that whatever their fellow townsmen did to them, whatever persecution they might have to endure, they knew that Jesus Christ would carry them through fire, he would carry them through water, he would carry them through flood and through storm, he would carry them through personal distress, he would carry them through religious persecution, they knew they were destined for glory. They were destined for glory and dominion. And that gave them endurance. And that's the secret of endurance. That's the secret of holding out. You can't hold out if you don't have strong hope. But if your hope is rock solid and it's anchored on the historical fact of Jesus Christ raised from the dead, then you will have endurance. And so when pastors and elders and deacons think about their people, and they observe among their people this work of faith, this labor of love, and this tenacity of hope, this endurance of hope. What do they do? But they get on their knees and they rejoice before the face of the Lord for this extraordinary uh, reality that God has generated among his people uh, faith and hope and love. Gratitude is appropriate because where do faith, hope, and love come from? Well, they come from God. The Thessalonians came to believe and came to have love and hope in their hearts because God was at work among them. And Paul writes about that in verses 4 and 5 where he says, For we know, brothers, loved by God, that God has chosen you because our gospel came to you not only in word but also in power and in the Holy Spirit, and with full conviction. 
Well, Phil knows as an experienced pastor and, and all pastors and missionaries and evangelists and actually all Christians who bear witness to the name of Jesus, they know that unless the Spirit accompanies the preaching, unless the Spirit accompanies the witnessing that you were doing, there won't be any conversion. There won't be any regeneration. There won't be any sanctification. There won't be anything of that going on at all. The Spirit must make the words of the gospel powerful. The Spirit of God must open the heart of believers. The Spirit of God must pierce the dark mind of unbelievers. And only when the Spirit of God is doing these supernatural works do people have the capacity to believe and to hope and to love. As pastors and as congregations, we need to keep these things together, word and spirit. It's remarkable that this Bible is inspired by the Holy Spirit. And yet the mere inspiration of the Bible is not in itself sufficient to bring regeneration and conversion, faith, love, and hope in order for the Bible to become effective. It must be accompanied by the special grace of the Holy Spirit in the heart of the one who is hearing the message. And so we need to keep these things together, um, word and spirit. And, and Paul certainly has felt that harmony of word and spirit in his own ministry in Thessalonica and elsewhere. Uh, he felt it to such, a degree, to such a degree that he can say here that the gospel came to the Thessalonians not only with the word, not only just with, with puffs of air uh, constituting words heard by the mind, no, Paul says, I came to you not only with the word, not only in the word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit with full conviction. Full conviction. Brothers and sisters, this is what you may expect from your new minister, your new preacher, your new pastor. I don't know what, what you're going to be calling him here, mostly. Um, but you may expect from him that he would be a man of full conviction. Not a little bit of conviction, not a once in a while conviction, not a partial conviction, but a full conviction. That he brings the word here with full conviction because it's not just the word, uh, but it's the spirit and the word in his heart and in the message. And that kind of preaching is really the only kind of preaching that can in turn generate full conviction among you who hear. You can't expect a preacher who doesn't have full conviction to generate full conviction among those who are hearing him. And so this is what you may expect and this is what you may long for and pray for, that your minister would be a man of full conviction and that you as a congregation would be um, sharing with him as you hear and receive the message, this extraordinary, spirit-generated, full conviction so that you're not doubting anymore. You're not questioning the gospel anymore. You're not wondering if Jesus is even real anymore, but you're fully convicted, convinced deeply in the depths of your heart that this message is true. And that your life, therefore, must align with that message in all of its aspects. 
Well, because Paul and his associates have experienced and witnessed his full conviction in their own hearts and among the Thessalonians, he can say in verse 4, For we know, brothers loved by God, that he has chosen you. You know what Paul's saying here? He says, I know that you people are, are elect of God. And sometimes we make the doctrine of election very mysterious and uh, it becomes a source of confusion rather than a, a reason for comfort. So Paul says, I know that you are among God's chosen people, just like Israel was God's chosen people. Now, God's chosen people is growing among the Gentiles too. And, and I know that you're among the chosen people of God, not because I've somehow climbed into heaven and read the book of life up there. No, I know that you are chosen because I see among you faith and love and hope. I see where those virtues are present and you are seeing the supernatural work of God. And behind that supernatural work of God is his eternal election of believers in Jesus Christ. And so, Pastor Phil, in light of what we read here in this passage, we, we have the temerity to encourage you to always do your, posture, your pastoring from this posture of gratitude. Even when you come to know the congregation better, as you certainly will, God willing, and realize that there is work to be done, uh, please continue to be grateful. And even if from time to time what you encounter is maybe only a flickering flame of faith, uh, be grateful for that flickering flame of faith, even as you wish to blow upon it so that it might become a mighty faith. And even if sometimes you, you might notice uh, a defect of love and um, Maybe sometimes there's only one cold cup of water uh, as, a, as a symbol of love. Be thankful for that one cold cup of water and pray for more cups to come. Be grateful because I think um, a lack of pastoral gratitude actually is exceedingly destructive for you and for the congregation and for the whole church. I think pastors, I'm speaking personally now, obviously, because I don't know Phil that well yet. I just had lunch with him once so far. But I think pastors uh, tend to have a bad habit of focusing on what's not right in the church. For example, if pastor's preaching to a congregation and guests, and maybe there's 199 people listening intently, but there's one or two who seem disengaged and Maybe somebody in the back row fell asleep. Pastor goes home and what's he thinking about? Is he thinking about the 199 who heard with gratitude the word of God or is he thinking about, man, what's the matter with that guy? You know, why is that guy not listening? What, what's going on with him? And you know, Anyway, that's, that's a tendency of pastors to focus on, on what's defective. And when you encounter moral compromise in the congregation of the Lord, which happens sadly from time to time, it's really easy to get preoccupied with that moral compromise and no longer be grateful for the steady godliness of many others. So I encourage you to be grateful because I have a theory, maybe one day I'll, I'll think about it a bit more and, and research it, but I have a theory that one aspect of pastoral despair and pastoral burnout is in fact a lack of pastoral gratitude. Obviously, it's way more complicated than just a simple equation. But I think it's a factor. It's a factor, among other factors. When we're not grateful, then we get run down. 
and we get discouraged and we tend to become empty. And when we're empty, then we call that burnout. Now, once again, please don't make a simple equation. I don't want that to happen. Burnout is complicated. A lot of pastors struggle with burnout at some point in their ministry. But I think this is one aspect of it that needs to be reflected upon. We need to pastor from a posture of deep gratitude for all the evidence of the work of God, Father, Son, and Spirit in the midst of his congregation. And elders and deacons, when you do your work with Pastor Phil, foster an attitude of gratitude and, and maybe just make it a habit at all, at all your meetings to just start off humbly acknowledging the wonderful work that God is doing in Pathway Christian Church, in the hearts of the believers. Be grateful and, and itemize it. Spell it out what you're grateful for. Work it out. And if it takes 45 minutes, so be it. Why would, why would that be so strange? That church leaders would spend 45 minutes in giving thanks for what God is doing in the flock entrusted to their care. And from your perspective, congregation, nothing can nurture your pastor more than him witnessing your faith, your work of faith, your labor of love, and your tenacity of hope when pastors witness this. This generates massive gratitude and enables them to continue in their ministry. So that was the first main thought. The second one we'll be a little briefer with. Um, Paul and his friends give thanks also for how the Thessalonians are imitating the apostle. Um, you know, every faithful parent and every faithful church leader should be able to say to their children or their congregation, live like I do. Live like I do. Parents, if you can't say that to your, to your children, then you have reason for much prayer. Live like I do. Follow me. Follow my example. And pastors also ought to be able to say to their congregation, live like I do. They don't say that arrogantly as though here I am and I've got my act together 100%. But they say that in the confidence that they are following Jesus themselves and as they follow Jesus themselves, they are able to say to their people, follow me. Because in following me, you will be following Jesus. Uh, this is something the apostle draws attention to frequently in his uh, letters. He often says to his people, live like I do. And so we ought to strive as church leaders to live such lives of integrity that we can truly say to the people, live like I do. I'm not perfect, but my life has a direction. My life has a, has a stamp on it that is a stamp of the Lord Jesus, and you need to follow me. And here in, in, in verse 6, uh, Paul um, is expressing thankfulness still, and he says it like this, you became imitators of us and of the Lord. So Paul was an imitator of the Lord, and now the Thessalonians are imitating him. And so they're imitating the Lord. And so really, what we learn from this, if I may summarize, is that a pastor's job is not only um, preaching, not only teaching, not only visiting. It's also mentoring by being an example to the flock, living a life of integrity. 
uh, an authentic Christian life, a life of conviction, a life of faith, a life of hope, a life of love, a life of joy, a life of gratitude. And, and uh, Paul and Silas and Timothy mentioned specifically a, a few reasons uh, for their joy in the imitation of, of the Thessalonians. First of all, he says that you uh, imitated us by being ready to accept suffering. We've already seen how Paul came to Thessalonica suffering. He suffered more in Thessalonica. He went to Berea, suffered more yet. Uh, virtually everywhere Paul went, he suffered. And the Thessalonians, right from the very beginning of their Christian life, were facing oppression. And Paul says, you imitated us in accepting that, in receiving uh, Jesus Christ in the context of oppression. So these Thessalonians had counted the cost. They had no choice. They had counted the cost right from the start. There's no beating around the bush. There was a cost. They had to take up their cross and follow Jesus in a painful life of self-denial. And it wasn't the grim thing for them. It wasn't that they were just grimly persevering. You know, it says that they were, they were receiving their affliction with much joy in the Holy Spirit. If you want to know what that looks like, think of Paul and Silas in jail in Thessalonica again. And what were they doing there in Thessalonica? You know, jails weren't nice places back then. They were rat-infested holes, dark, smelly, wet, cold, disease-generating. And there's Paul and Silas just thrown in jail. They don't know when they're getting out. What are they doing? They're singing hymns. Singing hymns and songs and spiritual songs in the Holy Spirit. Holy Spirit generated in them a very deep joy. And Paul and Silas and Timothy are very thankful to God that the Thessalonian church was ready to count the cost and to follow their leaders in suffering. You know, as you establish your presence in this community, and I know that is your, your desire and your passion to do that, not everybody's going to like you. Uh, some people will be receptive by the grace of God, but some people won't like you. They won't like you when, the, when you preach the gospel. And they won't like it when you share Jesus with them. And there could be just a counter movement, you know, of resistance to what you're doing. And the powers of darkness, we know that they will oppose you. They will oppose you. Make no mistake, you will be opposed. When that happens, follow your leader's example as they put everything on the line for Jesus Christ. And yet there's one more way in which the apostles were thankful. They were thankful for the way in which the Thessalonians were imitating them by spreading the gospel. And that's verse 8. Look what it says there. For not only has the word of the Lord sounded forth from you in Macedonia and Achaia, but your faith in God has gone forth everywhere so that we need not say anything. That's an amazing verse. This is such a young church. And Paul is saying that they have become the Christian broadcasting service of Thessalonica and beyond that to the whole province of Macedonia and to the province of Achaia to the south. Uh, Paul brought the gospel to the Thessalonians and now it's ringing forth, it says literally, from them to people all over Macedonia. How did that work? How did it get from Thessalonica to 
other towns and cities in Macedonia. How did it get to the southern province of Achaia for these Thessalonians? Well, you have to imagine concrete things. Uh, a fellow gets on the boat in Thessalonica. It was a port city, and he travels south, and he heads maybe to Athens, or he ends up in Corinth ultimately. And on the way, what's he doing? He's talking, talking with his fellow travelers, talking with business partners perhaps, telling them about Jesus. Um, Thessalonica was right uh, uh, on the highway, one of the main highways of the entire Roman Empire, and the Romans knew how to build highways. And people traveled freely also by road from Thessalonica, south and also east. And you can just imagine, again, these people traveling for family reasons, personal reasons, business reasons, who knows, maybe vacation reasons, and they go abroad, and everywhere they went, they couldn't be silent. And they spoke freely and effusively of Jesus as the Lord gave them opportunity. And so the gospel was sounding forth. Um, could it be that these young Christians of long ago put us to shame? They found ways spread the word. Um, they were bold, they were creative, they were unafraid. Well, today you are receiving a new minister of the word. You are a new church with, with a vision of your own about what you desire to be and where you desire to go and how you want to be used by God. You have a new church, a new, a new pastor today, a new opportunity. And God did not form you into a congregation, as you well know, so that you could just be nice and comfortable with each other and enjoy each other and minister to each other and inwardly care for each other. We all know that's very, very important to be a church that cares about one another. And we have gifts of the Spirit for building up one another. So there's something powerfully inward about a healthy church. But you have a vision to be also an outward-oriented church. And today, God is telling you that you should follow your pastor in this regard. Think of your pastor as a pastor evangelist. And if it should happen, maybe at some point that you think he's pretty busy and maybe hasn't got around to seeing you yet, well, think of, think of the fact that he's a pastor evangelist as well. And he has people to reach, people to communicate with, people to build relationships within the community. And if you think about it, isn't that equally important? So you have called your pastor, uh, think of him as a pastor evangelist who preaches to the converted and the unconverted, and think of yourself as his imitators, ministering to the saints and ministering grace to those who are outside of the flock. May I challenge you briefly as I wrap it up? What is your vision of what you want to accomplish in your life? What is it that you want to accomplish in your life? You know, sometimes when I talk to people, I get the impression that their main um, goal is to maybe pay off their mortgage by the time they're 45 or 50, although that might seem like a pipe dream to many younger people now with the prices of housing. But people have visions like that of their lives, and that's, that's the kind of goal they have to attain financial stability and, and, and security. Is it your goal to live a comfortable life and to check up all the things on your bucket list? Or could it be your goal that God would use you to lead at least one person into the light of the kingdom? Or two, or ten, or a thousand? What is your vision? 
What are you seeking to accomplish with your life? Remember, uh, the passage ends rather soberly when it says, Jesus delivers us from the wrath to come. Wrath is coming. You know, that's the subtext of every sermon, really. Wrath is coming. And that's why we need a Savior, because wrath is coming. The wrath is coming upon the world. Today, God is exercising patience and restraint, and we live in a season of grace and mercy and opportunity. But Jesus Christ will be revealed, and as John the Baptist put it, the whole realm of wickedness will be burned up in the unquenchable fire of God's wrath. And there's only one person who can deliver your neighbors, your colleagues, your fellow students from wrath. And that person is Jesus. And so, be imitators of Paul, be imitators of Silas, be imitators of Timothy, be imitators of Pastor Phil by being the loudspeakers to your community for the good news of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. May I lead you in a word of prayer. Our Father in heaven, we thank you this afternoon for the congregation which you have established in this place. We thank you for men, women, young people, children, babies, people who believe the gospel, people who love Christ, people who are looking in hope to the day of Christ. We thank you, Father, for Pastor Phil, who was installed this afternoon to be a leader of this church, to be a preacher of the gospel, to be a seeker of the lost, to be a shepherd of the flock. Lord, we pray for Pastor Phil that you would fill his heart with deep gratitude for all that you have given him in Christ, for all that you have given him in his wife, Joy, for all that you have given him today in his new congregation. And we pray that he may give thanks always, not just in the beautiful moments, but especially in the most trying moments of ministry. Father, we pray for our brother that you would give him health and strength, that you would grant him the fullness of your spirit, that you would anoint him with power from above so that he may fight the good fight of ministry and may run with perseverance the race that is set before him. Heavenly Father, we pray for a fruitful and joyful bond between this your servant, Phil Frodenhaus, and this congregation. We pray this in the name of Jesus, and we pray this for the glorifying of your name, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen.